Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today we welcome conservationist Jay Fuhrer, a name I'm sure most of you recognize. Jay has dedicated his life to taking care of the soil. He credits his parents for instilling in him a land ethic that has led to decades of work and research that we all benefit from today. Jay's approach to solving the problems of soil health is, as he says, doing most of his work with a spade in a field with his clients. Oh, and don't miss this important quote. Jay says diversity is the holy grail to go after. We may need to nickname him the Indiana Jones of soil health. This is a great episode full of wisdom and practical solutions that you won't want to miss. So let's jump right in. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm overjoyed to be joined by Jay Fuhr. Jay, welcome to this episode. How are you today? Thank you. I'm doing doing fine. A little cold in Bismarck this morning. Uh, it was uh, too below, but uh, we like it that way. So we're yeah, good. And we're, re- and we're recording this podcast in June. Okay. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds right. It's it's not that bad in North Dakota. It's a really Close. nice place. I, I've been there. It's a, it's a beautiful area. So uh, that, that's just a uh, you know, it's kind of like the people in Western Kansas when it's a 50 mile an hour wind. Oh, it's just breezy. You know, <laughs> it hasn't I, even I understand that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Jay, for um, uh, listeners that may not know you, just uh, we like to everybody to start with their story. Just kind of tell us your story and, and and your why and what's what's brought you to where you are today. Well, I think my story is, you know, I'd I'd spent about 40 years as a conservationist with um, Natural Resources Conservation Service working out, primarily working out of Bismarck, uh, North Dakota. And uh, Bismarck worked well um, uh, for me because I enjoyed working in Burley County, which is the the surrounding county around Bismarck. Still has some native rangeland left in it, a little bit less each year, but still has some. And uh, in addition to that, um, you know, it's in the central part of North Dakota. So we aren't really totally in the eastern uh, tall grass prairie region, and we are not totally in the western shortgrass prairie region. We're in the mid. So we have remnants of, of both. And so that made it a really interesting place to work. And, and uh, I was interested in in agriculture primarily because I received this land ethic uh, from my parents. And they were both products of the Great Depression. And they they worked and farmed through the Great Depression, left a real memorable um, impression on them. So I can b- vividly recall when I started to, to work for USDA in 1980, I remember talking to my dad about, uh, I said, there's something we're looking at. And I said, it's, uh, you know, it's a no-till seeding with no tillage. And um, I thought, wow, this is going to be an interesting short conversation with my dad. And because, uh, you know, everything was, every acre was plowed every year. And we were good at it. And he looked at me and he said, you know what the biggest problem we had with our cropping systems in the 1930s? He said the biggest issue was, he said, the grain always came off, but he said, then it would blow out. And he said, we just lose whole fields, uh, sheared out or seed blown right out of the ground. And he said, you know, he said, this, this no-till thing you're talking about, looking at more intensively at work, he said that, um, that might eliminate that problem. And that's all he said. And then he walked away like dads do and went back to work. And, and uh, I took that as a green light and, um, and a bit of a win. And so I went ahead and moved forward on it. But it really was this land ethic of my parents, I think. And 
how they took such good care of, of all the land, whether it was in grasslands or hayland or cropland. And then we had the livestock end of it, uh, beef cattle and hog production, some dairy. And so I, I think they were always scared that us kids were gonna run out of work. So they always, always had one more project for us, which probably was a good idea. And I think that land ethic, that transfer um, is really what made the difference. And then when I started working Monty in, in more of a um, uh, farmer client atmosphere, I did most of my work uh, at the end of a field with a spade and the end gate down on the pickup with the client. And that's where I did most of it. And I think um, initially it was so frustrating for me uh, because I treated symptoms. And I didn't know I was treating symptoms at the time. <clears throat> and so I would install all these uh, waterways in our cropland and diversions, etc., because basically the water was just running off. And I didn't really understand why. You know, if it rained an inch, we didn't necessarily get an inch in the, in the ground by no means. So I would spend my summers building all these waterways and I could keep a contractor pretty busy. And, and there was a lot of demand for it because there was a lot of it. And we were simple crop rotations. We were full tillage, no cover on the ground, no cover crops, uh, really no livestock integration to speak of and, and no diversity. Uh, and I think that's kind of how it started. And then it was a slow evolutionary process. I'd like to say I picked up on it in one or two days and man, I was there, but that's not true. <laughs> it took some time. And, and I, would, uh, I would contact people that had pieces of the puzzle, kind of understood, um, you know, whether it was um, a Don Rykowski at ARS Morris, Minnesota on carbon, or whether it was a Dwayne Beck on cropping systems at Pure South Dakota, all these different people, I would contact them. And I would say, could you train me? Could you teach me? And, and to their credit, every one of them said yes. And, and so it was a self-education and uh, being mentored by others, a combination of these things where I started to slowly go around the corner from treating symptoms to looking at the problem. So that's just a quick synopsis of kind of how I got started. But a lot of my change was driven out of frustration. And because I knew these things were not things that happened routinely on my dad's farm, because it was run very meticulously. And, and um, not that these people weren't, but now we had progressed further and our carbon levels had dropped further, uh, made this very difficult to hold that fragile ecosystem together. And so that, that was kind of the, the beginning uh, of the process. So that, that's an interesting point you made right there. It's kind of that slow degradation process. It's really over some, a generation or two. And because it happens so slowly, is it harder for people to discover that what they're doing is the cause of it? Do you think that's one of the drivers for continuing to do what grandpa did? Is because there, there isn't much doubt, Monty. I think that's, I think it's unintended consequences. And we go down a road with what we perceive to be best management practices, et cetera. And then we find out over time that yes, some of these definitely are, but some are, are not able to stand alone and they need additional support in terms of functioning on an ecosystem. And, and for us, I'll give you a good example. Uh, in the 80s, if I would ask one of my farmer clients, <clears throat> let's just say it, it rained an inch. And, and so I'd, I'd ask them, how much rain did you get? Oh, you know, we got 9,500s or, or we got 105. You know, everything was in hundreds because it was critical. We just always so close to the drought. And, and after we got down the road, you know, where we changed a lot of this around, we put cover on the ground. So we, now we had cover, we started to get a little more diversity. We started getting the no-till systems. We started looking at, uh, God forbid, a cover crop. 
because initially our thoughts were, well, they're okay for you, but they're not for us. And so we started looking at all these things and, and I think that really started to change. And then when it would rain an inch or more or less, and you'd say to that same person, how much rain did you get? The answer became all of it. That's a different answer because now we weren't letting it run off anymore. You were just and, lucky because that, that cloud hung out over your spot, your farm, longer uh, than the neighbor. Uh, that was uh, it. Uh, it's just because you're lucky. Amen. <laughs> I understand that totally. <laughs> and so it, it was a different scenario because initially we were talking about saving water, saving water, saving water. It's all we talked about. Right. And then one day that went away and there wasn't any more conversation on it. And, you know, we moved on. And, and uh, but, but initially, you know, these unintended consequences and growing through these things and challenging it uh, from the viewpoint of, hey, maybe, maybe this should be different, you know, I mean, so, so you start, that was always the value in the rangeland that we had in, in this county, because give you an example, the rangeland would have had 100 plus species in it. And one thing I always did, Monty, uh, when I was working with a client and we're conservation planning on his farm, I would always ask him to pick out a field, you know, representative field. Don't give me your worst, don't give me your best. Just give me a representative field. And we would work on that and, and I'd monitor that field. And I would do some analysis and I'd do some soil tests on it. And then we'd make some changes on it and I'd come back and monitor it again. Well, when I'm doing all that, I need a reference. So I'd go to their rangeland and I would take soil tests in there and I would do infiltration in there. And then, you know, you got something to compare it to right on that farm because each farm is so unique. That it's difficult to say, well, 30 miles away by Joe, he had this and you have something else. Whereas when it's, I think each farm needs to kind of be compared to their own environment. And, and so I, I, what I didn't realize at the time, but those soil tests in that native rangeland just taught me so much. And so I would do that at a number of different places. And that always gave me uh, a reference, if you will, for that farm. Yep. And I think this is, um... And, and correct me if I'm wrong, we should, should have verified this ahead of time. But if I remember right, when I was up there, you had every other section was uh, farmed versus owned by the railroad, I believe at one time. And at one time, you had, at one uh, time. there was a lot, there is a lot of rangeland kind of intermixed with farmland still. But like you said, it's getting more and more broken or farmed or housed. Um, so there, there is those across the road, across the fence um, comparisons to have there. And more, more so a very valuable resource so when i was working especially in the 80s there was a lot of mixed operations and uh, that that's not as prevalent as it was now we're we're much more uh, all grain environment and more so than we ever were and so the interesting thing about it just kind of give you an understanding in the 80s and 90s the and even the early 2000s the number one crop in North Dakota was spring wheat. Well, that's not true anymore. That all changed, you know, in this last 10 years or, or even more. Now the number one crop is soybean. And, and wheat and corn is very prevalent. And then you're gonna find uh, canola and some wheat or malting barley, okay? Uh, but, but that changed our whole environment. And, and it's a different scenario. None of these crops are evil, uh, but soybean is a low carbon crop. Wheat was a high carbon crop. And so if you had a farm that grew wheat four or five years in a row on a field, you aren't really hurting too much uh, from the viewpoint of carbon coming into your soil. It's, there's no diversity in that, and I don't promote that, but that's different than four years in a row of a really low carbon crop where very little food coming in. And so you, you start to weigh all those things out and that, that's what's really changing in our environment, Northern Plains uh, right now. Yeah, and as the world 
demands more protein, uh, you know, versus carbohydrates, we see that shift, you know, a lot of, uh, if you're in the corn belt, uh, some continuous corn is going away for, you know, corn, soybean versus maybe two years of corn and beans. So we're getting less carbon crops grown in, in general, uh, across a lot of the landscape. Um, and that does, that does change things. So that does change things. And, you know, this time around Monty, it's not, it's going to be different this time around in agriculture with what we're moving into. And this is one of the items that shows up. Um, because, you know, we're, we're moving into this carbon world, right? The future of carbon. And so as we do that, you start looking at these things because I monitor carbon in at the Minokan farm and I do it twice a year on every field. I see these changes. So I'm going to give you an example. So if I look at my, uh, I have a corn bean field. It's a, it's a demonstration farm, conservation demonstration farm, 10 fields. So one of them is corn bean, so I need a reference. So I have a corn bean field, static soil organic matter. I can't, I can't bump it up, okay? It's no-till, but no-till is not enough. And so, you know, the corn kind of moves it up a bit because it's higher carbon material, bigger root mass, all those type things. And then the bean kind of drops down again, and then it just kind of seesaws up and down. And so you're looking at a scenario where Everyone wants to sequester carbon going down the road here. And sequestering it is one thing, holding on to it is another. And you need both. And you have to have a system that is capable of that because look at what built your soils. You know, in our scenario here, these mollusol soils, uh, Lewis and Clark described it really well. Uh, huge amounts of animal impact and perennial grass. Well. That's, that's going to build the soil. It's going to move a carbon level. Okay. Now you take out those 120 species per acre and you replace it with one. Different situation. Short period of time that it's actually putting exudates in the soil. So you, you, we, we got some challenges. Well, the first time um, I met you was actually in California. You were invited out by Dr. Jeff Mitchell. And I believe it was you yes. and Brendan Rocky and a few yes. other people were, were presenting. Yep. The growers are in the Central Valley. I, I'd moved to Central Valley to help them adopt, uh, at that time, you know, no-till or minimum till techniques. You know, later became soil health, then regenerative. And yep. just yep. keep the, the, the circle keeps getting bigger that we get involved with uh, uh, moving the production paradigm. Um, and, I, you know, I thought it was interesting. And I, I'm not sure... If at that time you uh, had, uh, if the soil health principles had been, you know, codified yet, or if uh, uh, they were in process, but I, I remember, I remember your presentation and it was, uh, I, I think you were on your way there. Uh, so talk to us a little bit ab about the soil health principles and, and how those came, came together. And um, I actually have a link on our uh, website for our uh direct to consumer business talking about soil health principles and it goes right to Monocan farm <laughs> where you've got it written up there. So uh, uh, tell us how that came to be and, and, and the importance of those. So, so the, in my work environment and especially with USDA, I wasn't able to, in, you know, move the needle on, on soil health principles immediately. And so uh, soil quality was a forerunner uh, within NRCS with the soil scientists, soil quality. Okay, soil quality um, wasn't really defined in terms of how it would, uh, how to install it in a cropping system or a grazing system, those type of things. So it needed description. And I remembered that part that we didn't have. So then when we started looking at soil health principles, um, I took the initiative to describe them for the Northern Plains. And so I wrote them up and described them for the Northern Plains. And then it became kind of my template that I used when I worked with a client. And so it was that description of the principle because I remembered in soil quality efforts, all good information, all good data, 
but we didn't have it described where somebody could say, oh, we're gonna install this into this cropping system, this grazing system. And so got them described. Um, and the description I think should always uh, be updated periodically because it, it's always evolving, like you mentioned earlier, and we discover more. And so I think uh, it was at that point that uh, we started getting the soil health uh, principles described that we started to make some progress and started to get it uh, known. So the first time I ever talked to my peers about it, uh, I remember quite well, it was in Jamestown, North Dakota, and we had a statewide NRCS. This is just my peers, immediate peers, okay? And uh, I had made arrangements ahead of time to get on the agenda. And management told me that um, if we get the real work done, we'll give you five minutes before lunch. And I said, I'll take it, okay, I'll take it. And so you were, you five, were minutes, five minutes from not having these. Holy smokes. Five minutes before lunch, <laughs> I got up in front of my peers and started talking about principles and some description of them and how the impacts they could have and building of a soil aggregate and whatever I could squeeze into five minutes. And uh, that noon, I ate lunch alone. No, nobody, nobody said anything negative. Nobody said anything positive. Nobody asked a question. You were the only thing between them and lunch. You see, that <laughs> that was the problem. <laughs> uh, I think so. I think so. I think you're right, Bati. And so, so that got better over time. And uh, I think we started to understand these are dynamic soil properties that we can impact with management. And, and we knew that from the soil quality effort from many years earlier even. Uh, we also knew why soil quality never really got on the, never really got on the bus. Yeah, it was, it was too quantitative, if you will. Uh, would that be the way to describe it? You know, yeah, not, not enough description. Numbers that we're, we're aiming yeah. for, but not like why or how, or what does that Lo mean? That lots of columns, lots of standard yeah. mean deviations. So, and, yes, and that type. This equals soil quality index value of X. Yep. And it lacked a heart. Correct. Yep. And, and it needed a, a, you know, a beating heart. And, and I think the descriptions helped with that. And then people could take that and apply it to their own settings. And, and it's always been interesting because um, you go and you do a workshop somewheres and ultimately at a quiet time, you know, maybe it's lunch or a break or you're in the restroom or whatever, somebody will say something to you like, so I did this, this, and this. And, and it's kind of a quiet conversation um, because somebody who doesn't like to draw attention to themselves and what they're doing necessarily, but yet they want to talk to you about it. So those are great conversations. And uh, they give you, they give you, I think everything from some fulfillment to understanding what is and isn't working. The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And I think, uh, fast forward a little bit, it, it got picked up by uh, NRCS and USDA um, in the uh, really kind of a, a targeted campaign, uh, unlocking the secrets of the soil, I believe. Right. Uh, it became yes. popularized. Yes. I was all excited to see it. We participated, you know, got the uh, brochures out and, and those kind of things. But when, when they arrived, uh, there was a misprint. Did you notice this, Jay? At first, there was only four soil health principles. But somebody uh, between Bismarck and Washington, D.C. accidentally lopped off principle number five, which yep, I would intend 
is uh, equal to or has a greater impact than one yes. through four combined. The, this How is, did this you is... allow that to happen? I mean, didn't you have, <laughs> didn't you have trademarks, patent, copyrights in this? I mean, were there attorneys involved? How, how did you get this? Because now, thankfully, it has it has slowly crept into the publications. <laughs> Not much fanfare, but it, it's there. And it's even in the same text size. I mean, they haven't, you know, put it really small. Number five, integrated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was initially um, the soil health division uh, may, evidently made a decision to use four. And uh, so we had the soil health division out to the Minokan farm. And we also had the soil survey division, both out of Washington, we had them to the Minokan farm. And we went through everything on the principles. And I opened up the conversation by saying, I see that you've used four, I said, everything that's come out of North Dakota and Minokan farm, it said Burley County, et cetera. I said, we've always used five. And I said, the fact that you're using four is, is incorrect. And, and you need to look at addressing this fifth one, which you're maybe not real comfortable with. Uh, maybe it's a bit more uh, controversial. Uh, maybe there's, you feel there's more ramifications in there. Uh, could be anything from uh, confinement to feedlot to whatever. But I said, we need to get a ruminant back on the land as much as we possibly can because it's a huge part. It usually doesn't start out as the number one principle that somebody installs, they usually start out with the others, but ultimately it becomes the most important principle. And so it's a, it's a huge item in soil regeneration. And so it, uh, to, to their credit, I think they've been leaning back into it a bit more, but definitely one of the principles. Well, I'm certainly glad you uh, twisted their arm a little bit to to not overlook that because I, it is included now. It says, and where possible, you know, integrate grazing livestock. And uh, that is uh, that, big that step. Is a big step. A big <laughs> step. Now, you probably don't want to start with that, you know, if you're, you know, corn soybean guy or, uh, you know, yeah, I get that person and such, but yeah. that needs to at least be on your radar for the future. So. But you know, you bring up a good point when you say, Monty, when you say a starting point. And for me, uh, when, when I would write or describe principles, I would always start with, with armor. I always liked the term armor because, I, because of what it represented. And we always start with that. And the reason I always start with it is because until you stabilize a field, it's really difficult to do something with it with principles in general. And so here in central part of North Dakota, it wasn't until we put cover on our cropland soils that they hydrate and change the whole environment. And, you know, the whole evaporation, soil temperature, all these things that go along with it. And, and now you have a green plant, every green plant's a carbon inlet. And so as you bring the carbon in and now you have moisture, because all these soil functions take water. Right. And so it's, it's to me, armor is kind of at the beginning and then from there, move down the road. Now, I think this was kind of your secret way though, to um, make sure everybody does cover crops all the time because uh, of all the practices uh, <laughs> that a farmer can do, uh, cover crops, uh, yep. allow them to hit all five of the principles because you can have can. armor, it the yeah. living root all the time. You can you can have the diversity definitely in a cover crop mix. You can graze it. Yep. Uh, I mean, you're, you're hitting hitting all five of the principles. Was this was this the secret uh, message behind all this, Jay? It was, I'd, I'd like to say it was, Monty. I'd like to say that, but that's not true. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think I had to learn that as as we went down the road, but we definitely saw that occur as you just described. Because what else can you apply into a cropping system where you can click that many boxes? And, and it definitely has that potential to do that. The first time we looked at cover crops, I was more of the opinion, well, why would I use up my water and my nutrient and cost of seed and seeding, right. et cetera? Why would I do these things? It just doesn't add up. And it's really not maybe our European culture, if you will. 
And so we don't really have a long history of it. Look at the history in the US. You know, we started out with tobacco as the big cash crop. And, and as it eroded fields, we just moved a little further west and cleared out something additional. There was like, there wasn't cover crops in there. George Washington and Thomas Jefferson talked about cover crops. And, but in our system, we, you know, we started with the uh, uh, tobacco and then eventually as a monoculture, and then we eventually went to cotton as a monoculture, and then we went to corn, again, quite a bit monoculture. And so you, we have a history of that uh, more than we have a history of diversity. And so we got to kind of recognize that and, and know that we can make that change. And we got a number of people that have done that change. Well, we recently recorded an episode with Gabe Brown, and sure. he referenced you several times and, and really praised what you had taught him and, and the impact that you have made. So um, that that definitely needs to be recognized there. And one of the things I was discussing with him is the hardest principles to implement. And and looking at it now, because on my own farm I've I've integrated livestock, and and while that's a lot of work, uh, you can figure that out and make that happen. I, you know, I, I really think one of the tougher principles to do is diversity, you know, where, where you have on, at least on the cash crop side, because yeah. uh, a lot of our equipment doesn't allow for, you know, multi-species harvestable crops, right. Uh, right. For the grain, you know, right. we're, we're not doing a three sisters type approach. Right. Uh, we're, and the, the commodity crops, while we can grow, you know, specialty crops of those kind of things, it's just, a lot more time involvement, marketing, and, and may not have weather for the ideal situation. And it's hard to compete with those that do. Um, am I, do you agree or, or am I thinking of something wrong here in, in your, everybody that you worked with, do you think that diversity principle probably has one of the greatest impacts, but is probably one of the toughest things to accomplish? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think I would, I would concur with a lot of that because I can, I, I think over time I've racked up a lot of failures in that department. And, and now and then you get something that, that works and moves forward. Uh, you know, you mentioned Gabe Brown and probably one of the more brilliant minds in terms of understanding a systems process. And, and he always had the ability to look down the road further and anticipate that, that step that you're not even thinking about. And so he's, he's been very good at that in terms of, also in terms of direct marketing and, and bringing in these additional uh, diversity crops. And when I think about those, um, uh, what moves the needle on a carbon level in a cropping system? Well, it's the additional diversity because now you got a different plant root exudate coming in. The first four to eight weeks of a green plant's life, it's going to give you some sugar. And you can taste that very easily in a corn plant. And so if you dig up the root mass on a corn plant and it's less than uh, probably, you know, it's maybe, let's just say it's, it hasn't tasseled yet or maybe it's five, six weeks old and you nip off the tips, uh, you can taste this pure sugar. And <clears throat> you start to understand that this is probably our direct uh, carbon inlet in terms of more efficient because most of the carbon in the residue, most of the carbon, the grain's gonna leave us down the road and most of the carbon in the residue is gonna to go to the atmosphere. And even in the root mass, the majority of that will go to the atmosphere. So what, what happens with the sugar? Well, it goes directly into the soil biology. And so it's a huge impact. So diversity has this holy grail that's worth going after. And then you look at it, well, how to bring it into place? Well, uh, we've been working on a few different ways of doing that. And we can take, so just about all plants are compatible, but they aren't always compatible at the same stage. And so I'll give you an example. So we can grow a sunflower uh, for oils, oil production at the Minokan farm. North Dakota has um, oil crushing plants, and this has been a good cash crop for us over the years. I can put in the cover crops the day the sunflower goes in the field, all in one operation, and grow a nice sunflower field with an understory of cover crops. Done it in rows, we've done it solid seeding, that works, okay, that works. I can do, uh, I can move a carbon needle with corn 
but I need to stretch out the the width. And if I if I go to 60 or even anything more than 30, will bring me some sunlight into the center, and I can put seven eight species in there, and I can move a carbon needle. I can grow a corn crop, and I can integrate livestock. So that one works, but I don't put the cover crops in the day I plant the corn. Corn wants a head start. And so you start getting up to, you know, V4, 5, 6, somewhere in that environment. We can do this. Uh, now when you get to something like soybean, I've had my most success planting those green uh, into a cereal rye. And so I'll plant them green into a cereal rye because the Soybean alone struggles in the carbon department, but if I bring the rye in with it, plant them into a green growing rye, harvest out my, um, grow out some water if I need to, or terminate the rye earlier if I'm in a drier condition, you know, it's management. There's another aspect of bringing in the diversity and the role it'll play. Now all of a sudden, <clears throat> and I can graze the rye first. And so I've taken off quite a few pounds of production on grazing at first, and then we're going to plant the beans, uh, usually soy, but pinto, we've done canola, um, those, those work in that environment. So now it's another aspect, but it's, it's more management. And, and I think you're looking, you know, you're trying to think this system out so that the following year, you can have something that works as well. Um, and then we do the rotational perennials. So we rotate perennials through the Minokan farm as well. They're on five-year runs, managed grazed. Uh, I don't know if you've sold yearlings lately. We sold the Minokan farm yearlings a couple of weeks ago. That was an obscene amount of profit. <laughs> and I was like, this is going to be an issue in the, in the grocery store. And, and beef is uh, an issue in the grocery store right now because it's uh, as a meat protein uh, in comparison to pork or chicken, for instance. So yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think that is a bit of a challenge. And, um, you know, we've got some people in this country that have been really innovative on how they've done it. I mean, it's just impressive. And it's not like myself or somebody else has been telling them how to do it. They figured it out in their environment by looking at the principle. And, and then, you know, they went ahead and found what worked in their, their environment. Well, one of the things I love about you, Jay, is you're extraordinarily humble. And, and you teach things uh, very well. And, and uh, just to review a little bit there, what you're talking about is it's not only finding the compatible cover crop species, but it's finding the compatible planting window. So in the case of the sunflowers, you're, you found the compatible species, which are lower stories. So probably maybe cereals, spring cereals. They're, they're all broadleaf. All they're broadleaf. all broadleaf with okay. the sunflower uh, because then I still got a grass herbicide option. Ah, I see. I see. So, so they're all they're all broadleaves. And what are you looking at? Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so uh, so you got flax and you got canola, you got phacelia, uh, you got soybean, you got cowpea. So you got you got all these broadleaves. Yeah. And uh, and a lot of them are legume broadleaves as well. And, and so. Then, like you said, with the corn, you're going to wider rows to get the light down there because the corn yep. has to have the head start. Uh, yep. So once it does get that head start, it stays ahead and it canopies. And that's a real yep. problem we have where we're at is a thick canopy. I've had a lot of trouble with, uh, you know, trying to get V5 type covers established. Uh, I would think you do your are, environment would be really difficult because how much sunlight really comes through for you, you know, it wouldn't be much on a, if they're on thirty. Good corn crop. The goal is not much at all. So, you know, <laughs> there, in other but, words, uh, there's none. <laughs> yeah. So what you got to look at is if you give up a little bit on wide rows. And Bob Recker and I were just talking yesterday. You know, just trying to figure out this wide row thing because there's so many good things that can happen. How can we? What are the extra revenue pieces we can put together to make that happen? Well, and and my my dad grew uh, thirty eight. It was usually referred to as 38 to 40 because there was right. some, wide you row. could adjust, you could adjust his wide row. And uh, I really think uh, it isn't necessary even to go to 60. You know, if you could do something less, we went to 60 because of math and the headers. I mean, not because nobody had to buy anything. Um, and twin row 60s, that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, 
because I think mm -hmm. your in-row competition is a lot better uh, early stage. But well, and I, remember, uh, Monty, remember the old study that was done on eight rows beans, eight rows corn, eight rows bean, eight yep, rows corn. This was that. Yep, and you get in, and then they did the yield by row. Yeah. And, and of course, the, the first two rows that had the most sunlight, you know, they had the greatest yield. And so right. really, really, you're trying, you know, from an ecology viewpoint, you're trying to capture some of that, I think, as well. And then somebody invented 16-row corn heads and 50-foot platforms. You see, it's <laughs> yeah. ruined all this kind of stuff. I think yep. there's real hope for automation there. You know, as we get to automated vehicles, they can be smaller in factor and size. Because... Okay, let's face it. Why do you have a 50-foot platform? Because there's one guy that can run it, right? You don't have like three people standing at the, around at the farm looking for something. Waiting, to, waiting. You know, so yeah. we're, we're yeah. just, uh, equipment's got big because people have gotten fewer. So, uh, yep. you know, I think automation allows us to have more operators with which will allow us to get the smaller form factors. But, you know, back to what I was saying, you know, just looking at the mixture that you're planting with it and the timing of it, and really in the soybean instance, right ahead of the planting of the soybeans, that's a no-brainer. I mean, that's weed control. That is erosion oh, control. That is, that is actually stimulates the bean yield. Uh, that's, that's about as good as you can get. And, and also, you know, in the spring, if, so I got 10 no-till fields, but if they're green, I got earthworms actively up close to the surface in those. If they're brown, I got some worms, but not nearly as many because they got less food. Right? There's less food. There's a problem though, Jay. I find as you continue to give them more and more residues to eat and more and more cover crops to eat, them suckers get to be more and more of them. And they just they just eat the ground bare. They are yeah, they, hard they, they, they tell all their friends. They tell all their friends wow. uh, because they're obviously they're able to communicate. Yeah, and I and uh, you raise a good point. So all of a sudden, the CN ratio of your soil, you know, is getting quite low, quite close to what the soil is, which is you know about ten to one. So a carbon to nitrogen ratio. And so all of a sudden, you're at about the 10, 10 to one, meaning you probably have virtually very little litter on the surface at that point and, and so think, yeah do you think you're part of the cause of the mississippi river levels being so low because <laughs> you've improved soil health so much and the worms so much infiltration rates so much that there's just no runoff anymore do you think that's uh you think that's Monty, the only thing i'm really sure about in life is i'm always innocent that, that's really <laughs> the only thing i'm sure about after that it's pretty tough to say <laughs> All right. Well, we've talked about it a lot. I, I want you to uh, give a little more details of the background of the Minokin farm. Uh, it's a neat thing. Uh, Robin and I came to visit you in uh, August of 2016, I believe. And uh, you made me drive. You, you put me to work. You, you gave me a shovel and you gave me some ear infiltration rings and said, here, go do this. And I'll watch you dig. I'll watch you drive these in the ground, and then I'll teach you how this works. So it, it, it's a hands-on learning experience. I got out of the garden before I had to pull weeds, so that was good. Now tell us about Monokan Farm, how that came yep. about, and what it's yep. evolved into, and how it could be a model for people in other parts of the country to to do yep. with a public uh, producer partnership. So, so through the Burley Soil District, I was the district conservationist there from NRCS, and um, I was there forever. And and I was very uh, rooted in with my clientele and um, just all the partnerships. And uh, <clears throat> we we always had this. Um, I shouldn't say always, but ten years before the Minokan Farm, we had a little five-acre plot. And it was on a farmer's CRP field. And we had signed an agreement with the farmer and, and FSA that we could use this as a five acre plot, as long as we maintained a 50 point cover and all the requirements of CRP at that time. So we had that. And that's actually the plot that we had our big aha moments on with cover crops. And so we had grown our first combinations on that five acre plot, which became the Minokan farm down the road. And uh, so we learned about cover crops. We also had all of the um, perennial grasses and perennial legumes and different covers. And it was our, our learning environment. That five acres worked well. And the board, uh, and, and Dave was on the board at that time. And uh, they were very interested in expanding this. And so 
expanding to me meant 40 acres. Okay, we're going to go jump up way to 40. And uh, at the board meeting, the board said, well, we're not going to bid against another farmer. So we need to look for something that's been for sale quite some time. No one's buying. It's got a big sign on it that says for sale, but nobody's bought there for quite some time. And so eventually they found that close to Minokin, which is the first exit east of Bismarck. And I liked the term Minokin. I lobbied hard to have it be named Minokin Farm because in the Native American language, Minokin means you reap what you sow. That only fit, that, that fit. And then we were right there at the Minokin exit. And, and so consequently it went from five acres to approximately 150 acres. And a little bigger than I was envisioning, but it was exciting. And so we had been at this for a while, had saved a few dollars, um, dedicated toward, toward this. And then in addition to that, uh, one of the local banks uh, was willing to loan us the difference and set up a payment plan for us, and which they did. And so uh, when, when this particular item came on the table, I, I still remember on the agenda, I looked at the time and, and then I looked at Was the time. five minutes before lunch? <laughs> <laughs> no, but the interesting thing was the conversation was less than five minutes before the motion was made. Wow. Because we had, we had already worked through all of this and everybody was on board. It, it checked all the boxes we had been talking about. Uh, it was intended to be a demonstration farm. And, uh, you know, when, when um, Hugh Hammond Bennett started, you know, there were demonstration farms across the nation. And they only lasted a few years, really, because they were deemed to be ineffective. And then legislation got passed through Roosevelt for soil districts. And soil districts became the go-to for local, local information. Okay. And so really what the Minokin farm kind of became was a combination of the two. And so it goes back to the old concept of a demonstration, conservation demonstration farm, which I'd like to say is a brand new concept that I thought of, but that's not true. This was on the table many years ago and didn't play out. And then now we're combining it with a local soil district as its owner, et cetera. And so consequently it got purchased and then we started the whole process. You know, there was a lot to all this, um, setting up a building. So, you know, we had uh, two and a half acres in Bismarck right next to Walmart. So we sold that by the square foot, allowed us then to put some buildings up, um, keep our keep our loan amount down. North Dakota, Monty, and, and we may be visited about this when you were out, but uh, one of the few states that uh, there's a mill levy for soil conservation districts in state law. And so they can, they can assess up to 2.5 mills on taxable valuation within their county. So it gives you some foundation uh, to work with there also. And then, you know, we sold our property, buildings, the bank, the loan, uh, away we went, never looked back. And uh, I would say we average, and this is conservative now, we average 30 to 35 groups a summer. So that many working days where you actually have people there that you're, you're gonna present some information to. And there's many times it goes beyond that. And the value of what you're doing is the long-term systems research so you, yeah i think you so you know earlier you got the corn soybean as your check rotation but talk about the other uh plots that you have as you go there basically from west to east to across the farm yeah so you know you're looking at a situation where um if i look at all 10 of these fields and and did this not too long ago uh when we started we got together with the uh, ag research service at mandan and the soil scientists within nrcs and we did the full soils workup to the four foot level did that in 09 did that again in 20 you know 11 years later we did it again and many of the same people were still in in that group which was kind of interesting 
And, and uh, now you're looking at a scenario where you start comparing that and you start laying over your cropping system and you start to see these changes. So I'm doing this the other day because when you're a man my age, you know, and you get a chance to put some numbers on a graph and eventually draw a line through them, I mean, that's a pretty exciting day for me. And so consequently, I'm looking at this and one of the fields jumps out at me because um, I'll give you an example. Some of these fields from 09 to 20 did not gain in carbon. Some lost, some stayed the same, some gained, some gained significantly because every one of them had a different scheme on it, which was a lot of the value in long-term soil monitoring. And so now I'm looking at this one that had this big gain, well, why? So then I took a look at the cropping scheme. Well, the first thing that jumped out at me, it had the most animal days over that 11 years. It had the most animal impact. Okay, I wasn't totally surprised by that, but it's good to get it reaffirmed. The other thing that jumped out at it, it had the most plant diversity over the entire 11 year period. And so does diversity make a difference and animal impact make a difference? It moved the carbon meter. Okay. The other thing was um, some of the, uh, the reason I moved into uh, the 60 uh, inch corn with the covers was because the carbon needle got moved a lot when it was 30 inch corn for grain, followed by a cover crop combination that was managed to graze the next year. Big impacts on the carbon between those two. Well, instead of over two year period, let's put them into one. Now that synergism, you know, that old analogy of one plus one is no longer two started to come out. So that was why we got pretty interested in the 60 inch corner covers because we could accelerate this biologically. Yeah, just, you know, and then we got the perennials and the perennials will move you to neutral pH in that environment if you allow them to. And uh, the soil biology is likes that system. That's generally a nice uptick in carbon. pH is neutral. Uh, carbon in the soil is, is, is strong. Then I, I've got some, uh, all, all, again, all no-till fields. I had one that was 11 years of spring wheat with no cover crop, static soil organic matter. 11 years, no change. And so then I had some that I lost and I had a lot of crops like canola, uh, yellow pea, uh, food grade pea that we can sell locally here, goes to the Asian market, et cetera. Um, flax, uh, lower carbon crops in there really showed out. I mean, Dwayne Beckett Pier taught me that many years ago and I'm looking at this going, yes, I hear your voice. <laughs> echoing, uh, and you are correct. Uh, that's exactly what, what played out. And then you find out that the low carbon fields are not very soil resistant. They're not very, they're not very um, stable in terms of drought. So you get a dry year. Uh, also they collapse. And so your soil structure starts to collapse. And when you look at that, you'll find platiness. You know, when you put the spade in the ground, that's when you put the spade in the ground, there's no place to hide. That's like turning your cards up face up on a game. And so you start looking at those scenarios. So we started to put all this together. Now we're moving into this new emphasis on the future of carbon and everything from carbon agreements and you know, everything that's on the table. And there's a lot of discussion on how we're going to sequester this carbon very difficult for some of our cropping systems to do that. They're, they're just not made for that. And, and so that means changes. It means going back to the principles and looking at, how am I gonna, how am I going to do this? So all that's on the table and the Minokan farm is a great learning environment for the groups that come and we can stand in those fields and then talk about their history. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's great. And, and, you know, every, every summer, I know you have a, a large uh, open house, I believe, and then uh, we do host groups on a regular basis. So we'll have the in the notes about how to connect with Minokan Farm. Sure. Um, and, um, 
you know, where people can participate in that. It, it's uh, everyone listening to this uh, in the United States. Uh, you need to make a trip there. Uh, it's worth it. It's it's worth it to really see uh, thinking long term and, and those kind of things. And and what you've done is going to help answer those questions. Like you said, what are practices uh, that are using the principles to sequester the carbon and diversity and and critters or perennials are are what are at the top of the list. Um, well, that that leads me right in. My next question for you was, what are some of the biggest things you've learned? I think I think that's some of them, but I'm sure there's some other big things <laughs> you've learned out there too. Uh, what? Uh, let me ask you this because we you haven't talked infiltration rates much. Okay. What's the widest variance in infiltration rates from probably? I would say uh, maybe your worst crop would be where you've had a lot of broadleaves in there. Um, um, to it, it, your it, maybe perennials. What's what's the difference in infiltration rate? Okay maximum to at least yep. fair enough so for an inch of water and and usually i set up uh if i'm going to record it i'll set up five uh canisters and get an inch of water in each and we'll do the timing on it and i've um if i'm in um uh hayland that gets winter fed back on so nothing gets exported off and it's ready in the perennial and everything gets recycled uh, i've had those um you know, they, they can be less than 15 seconds. 15 seconds per inch. Yeah, in, in, I'm talking the first inch now. Normally you do two, but in one like that, um, I know the McPeak Ranch here in Burley County always feeds on their hayland, okay? So nothing gets exported off in different location every day, different location every day of the winter. And I have a competition with them on infiltration. And I've been getting my, my behind kicked and because uh, they're really good at it. Now, in <clears throat> the same scenario, so you're, the saying, same... you're saying 15 inches or 15 seconds for an inch is, is they're getting beat at that. They're, that's what theirs is. And I can't match that. Oh. And, I, and I've been something more than that. I've been between 15 and 30 seconds to get oh. my inch in the water, but they can do it in 15 or less. That's fast. I, I mean, normally you know, do two inches. If you extrapolate that out to 120 inches per hour, you know, <laughs> um, I'm sorry, but the Minokan farm is not going to survive the next Noah's flood. But I, I'm worried. <laughs> <laughs> so then, then some of the longer term ones, I've put an inch in um, on skin, loam, loam soil, okay, mollusol, loam soil. And um, after two hours, my thermos is empty and my patients are gone and I got other things to do and I just call it because that water's still sitting in there. Sounds like you're you're losing more to evaporation. You would, you would actually. And so, you know, once you once your macro, you know, if the macro pores aren't there from a taproot and the micro pores aren't there from building soil aggregates on fibrous roots, when those things aren't there you have a lot of difficulty getting water into the system because we knew this back in the 80s as as we ran off all our water and uh, we can we can create that environment again very easily and so it varies tremendously i can get a lot of mine um, in the in the less than a minute less than 30 seconds on a lot of these fields but then if i get too many low carbon crops then all of a sudden i'm at two and a half or i'm at three minutes something like that, which still isn't horrible, but now it's starting to show already. So it's um, it shows easily as we take carbon, which is the food, when we don't have enough food going into the system to feed the biology, to build the aggregates, it shows up in our infiltration right away. So the difference between 30 seconds and two hours is how many feet? <laughs> A lot. <laughs> a lot I mean, no i mean how how far apart are those two sample points out there oh they were both in the same county here you know they were they were probably just uh two farms that were 25 miles apart both loam soils identical soils i did them in the same day that's why it was so profound right. uh, and and the one that was a couple hours we we made changes we made changes because it speaks speaks to somebody when that water does not disappear. I always had an infiltration kit on the uh, in, at my desk in my office. 
And whenever I had an appointment, I'd throw that infiltration kit in. Doesn't cost you anything and tells you a lot of information. So it was always good. And but it all kind of goes back, Monty, to my my personal goal. And my personal goal is I want to be able to farm forever. And and when that's your personal goal, it you know, it's not the goal of USDA necessarily or Minokan Farm necessarily. I think you should also have a personal goal. And my personal goal has always been, I want to farm forever. And if you want to farm forever, you start looking at all of this a little different, knowing that you're going to get, get the right dog in the fight. And so I, I don't want to bring a, you know, a little poodle to, to a big dog fight. And so you, you get in the fight with the right uh, thoughts and the right um, tools, and uh, then you can make a difference on that field. Wow, my mind is blown by that uh, farm forever. Um, I, I want everybody who's listening here today to think that way. What's it like? How would you farm differently if you wanted to farm forever? Not just for for this this season, this year, or, or or this ten years, or just for the next generation. What would it be like to farm forever? And uh, uh, that's that's a critical mindset to adopt, isn't it? Well, it's where I'm comfortable and it's where I want to be, and it's where I put my efforts. And uh, I'll be the last person to ever say, you know, that everything that I've applied is, is correct. I've changed a lot of things. I failed on a lot of things. I try not to fail on them twice. And I, you know, I try to learn from it and, and move on and revise. But that, that goal has been constant for me. It's a great goal, and I hope a lot more people will adopt that, Jay. Well, I think we have traction in this uh, soil regeneration, soil health world that we've never had before. Mm -hmm. And there's gonna be some interesting things coming down the road uh, in this whole carbon emphasis that are gonna teach us some things uh, that we maybe kind of know now, but need to substantiate and get the right tools. Um, I think by the time we're done with this emphasis right now, in terms of uh, climate smart agreements or voluntary carbon credits or whatever you're looking at. I think by the time we get done with those in a few years, we'll be just about in position to move into it. Because <laughs> we're gonna have all these different tools that we're gonna try to measure with. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I had a, a colleague of mine say, what would you sign, Jay, if you were gonna do a um, carbon agreement, voluntary carbon agreement, what would you sign? I said to him very matter-of-factly, Monty, I said, want one that uses a model that shows an upward progression and they never, ever field verify. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. It's too variable, you know, Carbon, carbon's a challenge. Yeah. And it's so variable, uh, it's, not, it's not just a straight upward progression line, it isn't. And so it's, it's difficult, uh, and it's difficult to hang on to it once you do that. So it's food. It's food. And that, that's a lot of the issue. It's a precious resource. So it's a precious resource, but it, it, it's part of farming forever. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Jay, anything else you'd like to bring up with our short time here together? Well, appreciate, uh, appreciate you speaking for the resource, Monty. That, uh, that means a lot to, to all of us, I think. And uh, thank you for that. And I think, uh, you know, if we are all kind of willing to work together on this, I think we can really make a big impact. And I think we can have some desirable outcomes. And I don't think it's going to be easy. Uh, I think there'll be some challenges. Uh, but I definitely want to give a shout out to all the people that are doing this. Some, some very, uh, you know, some like kind of like a Gabe Brown, where he's, he's more willing to lay it right out there in the open. And there's others that that's not them. They're going to they do something in a much uh, different setting. Uh, but collectively, all of them together made a real impact. Well, thank you, Jay, for what you've taught me personally, uh, what you've, uh, and certainly what you've taught the entire agricultural community, both in, you know, professionals at NRCS and farmers, consultants, and, and really helping to define and, and paint the picture of those uh, soil health principles and, uh, and all the impact you've done from really practical research and demonstration that people can get engaged in 
Um, you're just uh, you're a real leader because you're doing everything that you possibly can uh, with what you've been given to make the biggest impact. So well, I was just glad I got those five minutes before lunch. That was that was the most critical. So <laughs> <laughs> thank uh, you, Monty. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jay. You have a you have a wonderful day, and likewise, uh, we'll stay in touch. Okay. Take care. Take care. Yep. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the conversation today. What a great way to keep our minds thinking about the impact our soil practices have on soil health. And Jay's practical know-how that encourages us and gets us to the spot when asked how much rain we got, we can say all of it. Jay also says his work in this field has allowed him and others to farm forever. Now that's something to strive for this year. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.